Welcome to Funny, They Don't Look Jewish, where Judaism appears in the panels. Our purpose is to find characters, stories, and issues of comics that explore explicitly Jewish content. I'm Brandon Bernstein. And I'm Henry Bernstein. No No relation. Happy Hanukkah, everyone. It's Henry, your favorite Bernstein who's not a rabbi here. This past Sunday, on the seventh day of Hanukkah, I had the incredible opportunity to interview Roy Schwartz, author of Is Superman Circumcised? The Complete Jewish History of the World's Greatest Hero. We were at Congregation B'nai Tikva's Hanukkah event. I want to give a big thank you to my friend Rabbi Jeremy Fine, who invited us. Roy and I had a great conversation with tons of comic book and movie and Jewish deep cuts, the kind that you're used to. Enjoy the interview, and Brandon and I will see you back here soon. My name is Henry Bernstein. I host a podcast called Funny They Don't Look Jewish, which explores explicitly Jewish content in, in superhero comics. So most writers like Roy and teachers and fans, we've seen that the trend is to focus on the creators of, of comics, like Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, who are Jewish, but we're looking for ex- actually explicitly Jewish content, which we define as a character saying they're Jewish, doing something, speaking Hebrew, going to synagogue, having a bar mitzvah or a wedding. And our goal is to ultimately see more of that kind of stuff in superhero comics going forward. Roy Schwartz is the author of Is Superman Circumcised? The Complete Jewish History of the World's Greatest Hero and The Darkness in Lee's Closet, and The Others Waiting There. He writes about pop culture for various publications, including New York Daily News, The Forward, and CNN.com. Roy received his BA in English from the New School University and interdisciplinary MA in English and social thought from NYU. He has taught English and writing at the City University of New York and is a former writer-in-residence fellow at the New York Public Library. He can be found at RoySchwartz.com and on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at RealRoySchwartz. And as of Friday, won the Diagram Prize for Oddest Book Title of the Year. Congratulations, Roy. Thank you. Thank so you. with that, let's, yeah. let's talk about the title. Yeah. What in Rao's great name were you thinking? <laughs> I was thinking two things. One, I wanted to be funny. I wanted to catch attention. You know, if I called it Superman is Jewish, you can flip over that. But if Superman circumcised makes you stop. It makes you <laughs> chuckle. And, you know, at the end of the day, I want to sell this thing. The other, though, was to convey that, well, this is a serious book about themes and history and all this kind of stuff. I don't take myself too seriously. And nothing should take itself too seriously. So I also wanted to be a bit playful, kind of convey that it's a fun read, you know? Yeah, I mean, you know, for me, other than his red trunks, I don't want to think about what's going on over there for, for Superman. But, um, you know, I can't help but, but think about that. How did you come up with the title? What were some other titles that you kicked around that maybe didn't make it? So, first of all, I'm sorry if I'm disappointing anybody. And I'll understand if you'll get up and leave. But the book is not literally about Superman's penis. It's, <laughs> it does not make an appearance in any one of the 106 images in the book um, from any angle. Uh, it's a cheeky title. It's really about the, histor- the historical context and the themes in Superman comics from his creation to date. And many, many, many are Jewish, as I explain in the book. Actually, the book never had a different title. A very early version of this started as my grad school thesis at NYU, and it was really about the concept of heroism in Judaism compared to uh, Christian continental folklore. 
And from that came this book, which is really focused on American comics and superheroes, and particularly Superman. Uh, the subtitle kept changing as I was working on the book, and actually I got a pushback about the subtitle from the publisher, The Complete Jewish History of the World's Greatest Hero. Title, never. They always loved it, and that was always the title. Of course, once the book came out, I got all kinds of reactions from across the spectrum about the title, as you might imagine. Anyone, was anyone, uh, like, incredibly offended by it? Oh, yes, or? yes. Everybody's offended by everything, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, aside, from the, aside from the normal anti-Semitic whatever, which right. is around... Uh, yes, yeah, some stores wouldn't carry it. There was uh, some people, it's offensive, I can't put it on the news, or how dare you, it's, circumcision is a serious topic, how dare you write about Superman in this way? You know, um, listen, different people have different potty training, right? I can't control it all. Right. And, um, well, uh, if bookstores, if some bookstores don't want to carry it, you know you're doing something right. Right, right. Yeah, right. There's there actually go. one uh, news producer, so I've been getting a, a lot of press, I'm very thankful for that, one uh, national news producer, I, I won't name the, the show, they said, we will have you on the show, but do you mind changing the name of the book? We're afraid I'll offend audience. It's like, what is, the book is out. What is the name of the book? <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Superman name or it's what? It's a good question. Do you guys hear you asked if I had to pay royalties to use the Superman name? The answer is no, because it's an academic publisher. It's primarily an academic book. It's nonfiction. If I wrote a fiction story, then that would be a different uh, issue. And the lawyers in the publisher vetted the amount of imagery that's in the book. And I did have to scale a little bit of it back. Uh, if DC at some point came and said you can't, that would be the publisher's problem, not mine. But DC actually intentionally has, unlike Marvel, which is owned by Disney, if you don't know, which has a very strict policy of use a comma of ours, we will sue you. DC intentionally keeps it very vague because they want to allow it while keeping plausible deniability. Right. And this I heard from Paul Levitz, the former publisher and editor-in-chief, that they intentionally do not have a written policy on this, publicly at least. I'm really excited to talk to you, Roy, because on my podcast, unless I shoehorn him in, I rarely get to talk about, about Superman because from our perspective, there's you know nothing explicitly Jewish about Superman until you came along. And... <laughs> Uh, based on our definition, and you know, yet here you are challenging that very idea. Other than the general feel of specifically the Golden Age Superman from the 1930s and 40s being the champion of the weak and the oppressed and the immigrant idea, what are some other examples that point to Superman being a Jewish character? So if you guys don't know, the comic book medium is a Jewish invention. And the superhero genre is a Jewish invention. Like Hollywood, it was an industry of Jews, entrepreneurs, and artists, and writers, and editors who couldn't get a job doing anything else. It was the Depression. Jews couldn't apply to any serious publication. Press was mostly waspy and all this kind of stuff. So they created an industry of their own. They created comic books, which really got their start by uh, licensing old Sunday comic strips from newspapers, the Sunday Funnies, and reprinting them. Uh, and that's, this started in 1933. And the guy who came up with this was Max Gaines, Ginsburg. Uh, an unemployed uh, school teacher from the Bronx who, to escape his Yiddish mama that he had to move in with her, ran up to the attic to hide from her. And then he opened old newspapers, started reading the comic strips, and hey, maybe kids will pay for this. Um, it started a small industry. It was sort of very uh, ephemeral. Nobody thought anything would come of it. Uh, but and as you know, a couple of years in, they started running out of strips to license, and they started commissioning new content. And one such company was called Detective Comics, known today as DC. And they had a new anthology. By the way, they're called comics because originally all the strips were comical. They were funnies. That's how they're called comics. And uh, they decided to curate, create a new anthology, meaning a bunch of short stories, called Action Comics. That was debuting in June 1938. 
And there were 13 pages short. On, uh, the deadline was approaching. They already booked the printer. It's already paid for. They're 13 pages short. So they had an editor reach into the slush pile, which is the rejected pile, and then pull something they had rejected before, something Superman something. This Michigas idea about a spaceman who flies or something. They said, okay, let's see what happens. And they put him in, and the rest is history, right? And I love that creation story. In and of itself, it's an amazing story. And people have noted that Superman's creators were Jewish. His publishers were Jewish. His editors were Jewish. And people have noted some elements. The easiest thing to point out, which is not an original thought of my own, this has been talked about, is that his origin story is taken from Moses. He's a baby that to save him from the destruction of his people, he saved, he's put in a vessel, sent adrift to an unknown fate, found amidst thick vegetation, renamed, raised by people not his own, and adulthood becomes a savior. And when I started researching my book, I told the publisher, you know, I have some new things to say about this, but some has been said before. I can maybe squeeze out 50,000 words, you know, a nice beach reading with some images. The publisher is academic, like, no, 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 it has to be at least, at least 70,000 words. My first draft clocked in at 196,000 words. <laughs> I had to get a fellowship from New York Public Library. I became a researcher and a writer in residence for two years. And the reason is because I found a ton of stuff that people did not notice before. Tons. And it's not just the golden age, the 30s and 40s, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s. And then it dies down a bit and actually recently it came back up mm -hmm. again. And I'll give you one example. It's a long answer to, to this very short to the point question. <laughs> But I wanted to bring up the rear. I didn't know how many people, you know. There is a years-long saga in the Superman comics called Miracle Monday. And it started in 76, and it, it went all the way up to the late 80s, here and there in comic books. It even had a prose novel with its own name in 1981. And it's a holiday that humanity celebrates in the far, far future, in 1500-something, to celebrate how Superman saved humanity. Seems pretty straightforward fantasy, but wait because it also celebrates how Superman taught us, and I quote, to live as a free people. It is a spring holiday celebrated in May in the form of a family dinner uh, where you raise a toast and say, let all who are hungry come and eat. That is literally the kol Then you put some food on a plate and put it aside symbolically until Superman's return. This is the glass of wine for Prophet Elijah. And the, the comic that really showed this the most was Superman 400 from October 1984, the father of the family is named Herzog, and he just happens to look exactly like Chaim Herzog, the president of Israel at the time. <laughs> Which writer came up with Miracle? I mean, did Elliot S. Magan, who wrote the book, come up with right. that concept? So the main creative force, uh, comics are usually, they're usually not a tour pieces. They're usually a writer and an artist, and more than one artist. So the writer, the main creative force in writing of Superman, after his creators were let go, that's his own story, was Elliot S. Magan, who's Jewish, uh, a student of Kabbalah, of Martin Buber, who said in more than one interview, uh, I think that Superman is Jewish, is so self-evident, it might as well be canon. <laughs> if only it was canon. Roy, how long did it take you to compile all this research and, and then, you know, put it into something readable, like you said, a beach reading? Right. You must have been working on this your whole life. So it's not quite a beach reading, but <laughs> yeah. So the, the, the publisher is academic. The book is technically academic. It ends with 41 pages of endnotes in bibliography, which is why it's thick. But it's written in plain English because I want it to actually be enjoyable to read. The idea is if it's too stuffy to be accessible or entertaining, then what's the point to begin with? Who are you writing for? So it really just reads like a straightforward nonfiction book with all kinds of humor and jokes and, you know, that kind of stuff. And yes, there are circumcision jokes. In case you're <laughs> um, but aside from the grad school thesis, which this is sort of evolved out of, this took me six and a half years of research. 
again, two years in uh, as a research and residence under a fellowship. And uh, that included reading, uh, watching, and listening to everything Superman ever produced since 1938 to date, <laughs> which I like to say was a dirty job, but somebody had to do it, right. as well as other historical research. I believe I've read every article about or interview regarding Superman in American mainstream press since 1938 to date, uh, as well as international press and a lot of historical research about the period because there's a lot of context of exactly what was going on in the world and how things in the comics reflected things going on in the world. And I discovered a lot of amazing things. For example, that Superman's creators at the time, 21 years old, got into a personal tiff with the Nazi SS, possibly Joseph Goebbels himself, and they trolled each other over international press. <laughs> and they just got back, insulted each other in the press, back and forth, which is amazing. Say more so, about that. Tell a little more. I'll tell you more. I'm glad yeah, you asked. Yeah, because not a lot of people know about that. Right. Yeah. Okay, so... I'll give you the full background since we're an intimate group, so I feel like yeah. I can get into this. Yeah. So, uh, when, so when Siegel and Schuster uh, created Superman, they were 17 years old. They were high schools. They created him as a, as a high school idea. And they said, oh, this is a cool idea. Let's pitch him. They sent him, on, over the course of four years, to every single newspaper syndicate in the United States, and they all rejected him. It's a weird idea. It's too gimmicky. It wouldn't last. My favorite King's Feature Syndicate was the biggest, said, it's too fantastical, kids will never relate. <laughs> and then come, of course, DC Comics, even they didn't believe in it. They just kind of shoehorned it in. It was last minute. They were behind a deadline, pure accident, um, to the point where the publisher, when he saw Superman, said, I don't like this thing. Let's, let's not have him on the cover for a few issues until the sales figures started coming in, right? To give you a scale, the very well almost best-selling comics back then sold 200,000 copies. Today, that's a lot. Back then, that was, you know, 200,000 copies. The very, very top best-sellers, which were few and far between, reached 400,000 copies. Superman sold 2.2 million. By 1942, he was selling 12 million copies. This is the Depression, right, when everything is collapsing. By the way, to give you a scale, American population time was 132, 134 million people. So you know, multiply everything by two and a half to get a scale. 1940, we're still in the Depression, tail end, but still the Depression. Everything's collapsing. Superman gets his own radio show, the one with Bud Collier. Uh, four and a half million listeners, the a third of them are adults. The most popular radio show lasted a staggering 2,088 episodes. Think about that, right? Uh, he got the Fleischer cartoon serials, no TV, this was shown in theaters before movies, 20 million people. It prefigured film noir by a decade and a half. It's film noir, 10, and a half, 10 years and change before film noir. He had his own day in the 1940 New York World's Fair that broke all attendance records before or since. Uh, he was his own balloon in the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. Uh, Time Magazine declared him the number one juvenile vogue in the United States, which is not bad for something kids would never relate to, right? <laughs> what was the question Nazis. again? <laughs> Nazis, right, right, Nazis, Nazis. Okay, so. Uh, but Superman was created with a purpose. And that was to fight Nazis. And his creators talk about this, how the impetus for creating their... Before he was the Man of Steel, he was known as the champion of the oppressed. And before he took on uh, giant robots and alien invasions, he was, he was slapping Nazis around. Their proxies and then actual Nazis. And the rise of Nazism in Europe and the, the rise of anti-Semitism in America, which was much more severe than what collective memory has sort of taken in, because we don't like to think of our sins. Nobody does. But for example, in 1939... The Nazi, the German Nazi Party, the American Nazi Party, the Bund, marched down Fifth Avenue from the Upper East Side to Madison Square Garden, 22,000 people. 
in Long Island, they had an, a military training camp in Yapag, which with thousands of people being trained in armed combat, it was scary times. So Superman was created as a reaction formation in psychology, that's sort of like, a, you're saying I'm this, I'll show you what for, that's sort of the idea. That's what, you know, spread his creation. And, um, and they did get death threats and all this kind of stuff. And you think, okay, there's a depression, these are high school educated Jews, they're 20 years old at the time, they're fighting, they're supporting their family, Schuster had seven brothers, he was financing everybody. Let's keep a low profile. Instead, there was a magazine called Look, which was a competitive life magazine, and they wrote a two-page story how Superman would win the war. It's how he would win the war. It's not canonical. It's what if, right? And in it, he just strolls through the Siegfried line, the impregnable fortification line between France and Germany. He twists Nazi cannons into to pretzels. He uh, swats Luftwaffe out of the sky like flies. And he grabs Hitler and Stalin, and Stalin from the scruff of their necks, like little kittens or little kids, uh, Stalin at the time was still an ally of Hitler, following uh, Ribbentrop Molotov, right? Hitler would break out two months later. And he flies them to the League of Nations in Geneva to stand trial. <laughs> which, is, which is great. It's a great story, and it's great wish fulfillment fantasy, but at the end of the day, it's just a kid's comic book character in this two-page story. It was even printed in, like, pink and red in this weird, cheap way. Who cares, right? Turns out that the Nazis care. And the SS had their own magazine, because, you know, if you're going to be in the SS, you might as well have a lifestyle magazine, called the Schwarze Court, the Black Corps. And they dedicated a whole page, which may or may not have been written by Joseph Goebbels himself, to Superman. And in it, they accuse him of being Jewish propaganda. And you can't invent this stuff to brainwash impressionable American youth <laughs> with false Jewish values like protecting the innocent, helping the weak, being kind to others. <laughs> I love Horrible that. idea. Horrible idea. Yeah. I mean, this was all about the warped Nietzschean Ubermensch, right? right Ubermensch. Survival yeah. of the fittest and Lebensraum and take what you can. And all of a sudden, he's like, no, help other people. You're the strongest actually be. This was what, what Nietzsche called slave morality, but the Nazis warped it. So they had a little, you know, um, and I just love that. And I translate the entire German article in the book because I thought every word of it was just gold. So it's all in there. And... Um, uh, and there's, there's even some, there was some reporting that, that Goebbels had a conniption about it in the middle of a Reichstag meeting, you know, <laughs> but who knows. But either way, this was reported on pretty extensively in the American press, how these two Jewish kids managed to ruffle the feathers of the vaunted Master Race. And, you know, it must have been kind of, you have to, they must have felt pride. They never talked about this. They never addressed an interview. They never discussed it. There's no records. But it must have been felt nice to kind of poke your, your finger in Hitler's eye but it also would have been scary. They got, they, they got death threats. Uh, people picketed DC Comics' office. They were friends with um, Jack Kirby and Joe Schuster. Uh, uh, Jaime Joe Schuster, Simon. Uh, Joe Simon, sorry, thank you. Joe Simon, Jaime Simon, and Jack Kirby, Jacob Kurtzberg, who created Captain America, who punches Hitler in the cover for his first issue. They got bomb threats. They got people in their lobby. Uh, that's its own wonderful story that's yeah. in the book, and we can get to in a second. And, um, but it's not my, my own discovery. It's, it's an existing story. Uh, so you'd think that at this point, Siegel and Schuster would say, okay, enough is enough. We got it off our chest, you know, out of our kishka. We're not going to, you know, we have family to take care of. But no. Fast forward to Superman 25. And what they did was create a very, very metatextual story by which in Superman's world, there is a comic book character who is the king of superheroes, who has made Hitler the laughing stock of the world. And the, the stories that they address in this story is the story from Look Magazine, <laughs> right? And they put themselves as characters, particularly Schuster, like yeah. a Schuster lookalike, in the story. Um, and in it, this character is this kind of able-bodied but feeble-minded 
you know, do-gooding Neanderthal, basically, which is what the Nazis claimed. And they almost word per word kind of built their character based on that description. Uh, but what they do is humiliate the Nazis throughout the story again and again and again. So they're, they're the ones that ended up having the last laugh in this kind of wonderfully metatextual story of reality, you know, life imitating art, imitating life, imitating art, imitating life, you know, dot, dot, dot. Roy, one of the things uh, we talk about a lot in my podcast is about how comic books are actually a great gateway to reading and to exploring things about yourself. And it's a, it's a great way for young people to start their learning journey in an accessible way. You've said in interviews that you actually learned English from comic books. Is that is that true? Right, right. First of all, comics are the anti-gateway to drugs because if you buy comics, you can't afford drugs. Right, <laughs> especially now. Pop now, yeah. yeah. Um, so I was born and raised in Tel Aviv in Israel. I'm a Sabra, and I taught myself English from comics and from cartoons, which is why you'll find me saying things like swell and great Scott. <laughs> like, you know. You're in good company with Clark yeah. Kent. Yeah. <laughs> what about this book is, is different? We've seen this kind of thing before. There's a book from Krakow to Krypton. The book about Siegel and Schuster called Superboys has a lot of this. What makes your book sort of apart from those stand out different than those? My Mishtana, this book. <laughs> yeah. um, so it's, it's a good question. So three things. The, there are three main books that have been written about the Jewish influence in comics before me, and they're all three great. There's From Krakow to Krypton, by Ari Kaplan, who's a friend. There's um, the one book that may have a better title than my own, Up, Up, and Noive, by <laughs> Simka Weinstein. And then there's my favorite, uh, Disguises Clark Kent, uh, Jews in Comics, by Danny Fingeroth, who's also a friend, uh, and a renowned comic book scholar. But all three of these books only touch upon Superman in a very quick, superficial way. Superman, Moses, creators, Jewish, done. That's it. And they only address the golden age, 1938, Superman's appearance, till the end of the war, more or less. Um, but there's so, so much more. And what I do is, first I go a lot deeper. And I go, I go into the Talmud, into Kabbalah, and I had a rabbi, and I had like all these kind of people look at the book and give their advice and make sure it's like kosher. So I go a lot deeper into the Jewish meaning of things. Uh, but I also don't stop in 1945, because the Jewish themes did not stop in 1945. And the amount and the depth and the richness of what I discovered was amazing, which is why I said, somebody's got to write a book about this. And then I said, okay, I'll write the book about this. Mm -hmm. and this is how it came to be. That's great. Um, in another interview and in your book, you talked about the idea of Superman, you know, tucking his cape into his pants, sort of like the, the religious Jew tucking their talit in, into there and hiding and sort of fitting in. And certainly... Clark Kent, to me, feels very Gentile. Like, the Kents are for sure Methodist in Smallville. Doubt there are any Jews in Smallville, Kansas. Maybe there's one 0. or 0.6% of population. There, there you go. Okay. You know, how do you reconcile the premise that Superman is Jewish while Clark and certainly Lois Lane and Perry White and all these characters are definitely not? Lay it on me. Perry White, <laughs> very recently... In a comic, in oh, yeah. Leviathan Rising. You're going to be one. late for Shabbat dinner. Right. He's like, Lois Lane would have had the story in by now. I wouldn't be late for Shabbat dinner. Yeah. It's a very strange thing for a Gentile to complain about. Just saying. You yeah. know. So he also there. hosts a Christmas party at the, at the Daily Planet. Well, he's the boss. <laughs> fine, fine. Um, you know, and first, also, Metropolis is ostensibly New York. And right. in the words of Lady Bruce, if you live in New York, you're Jewish, even if you're not. <laughs> so, you know. But, um, you know, Clarkin is an interesting. So Superman was born in Planet Krypton, Kal El. And what is El in Hebrew? God. God, right? Like El Malel Hamim and all these kind of things. 
And his costume, his outfit is really traditional Kryptonian garb, and it's, depending on the version of the story, but it's made from the blankets that his mother wrapped him in when she put him in the, very much like Moses was wrapped in blankets. So this makes it an ethnic fabric. Right? This makes it like a habit, whether it's an, you know. So you have this guy who's born with a Hebraic name, who immigrates from the old country to America, <laughs> anglicizes his name to the super waspy Clark Kent, right? <laughs> and he tucks his ethnic garb under his suit. And he walks around in a suit, but in, underneath is his colorful ethnic garb. And if you think about when he transforms from Clark Kent to Superman, he's not just changing his personal identity, but he's also he's changing his ethnic identity, his race. So it's this ultimate assimilation slash assertion fantasy, which for Jews at the time was everything, because you wouldn't go around saying, I'm proud to be Jewish. That was completely not, you know, not relevant to anything. Mm -hmm. There was a norm, and that's, that was it. That was the thing to do, was to pass. Um, even regardless of anti-Semitic dangers that even in New York and even in... Um, America existed. Uh, and Clark Kent is an interesting kind of, you know, Danny Fingeroff says um, he is a mixed metaphor, but he works fine that way, right? Mm -hmm. And Clark Kent, yes, it's the Gentile costume. The Kents are canonically Christian, depending on the version, Methodist and or Protestant. Right. Uh, when they rebooted Superman 2011, they made him Baptist, but that didn't last because they should be Baptist. Yeah, and, it doesn't um, make sense. <laughs> no. uh, also something has been noted, it's like this very little, uh, by the way. And... Um, so yeah, he grew up as this kind of white bread, you know, he has all the ethnicity of Formica, right? This kind of white bread. Gee whiz, Mr. White, you know? Um, but that's a pretense. And the real guy is the, you know, the ethnic identity. At the same time, Clark Kent is basically Woody Allen. He's a quintessential Jew. He's nebbish, lemil, nervous, awkward, put upon. Again, especially at the time, he was a, you know, this kind of checklist, this burlesque of stereotypes, which Siegel and Schuster, by the way, fit themselves. And they, they uh, based Clark Kent on their real selves. They were exactly that way. Shy, um, clumsy, awkward, uh, bespectacled. And also like sort of a Harold Lloyd. Uh, right, that's thing. the other thing. Yeah. Uh, Clark Gable is the source of the name. Harold Lloyd is the glasses. Right. Uh, although they, they said in one interview that in their minds, the S stood for Seagull and Schuster. Yeah. It's their yeah. avatar. Yeah. You know, their reaction formation. Yeah. So, you know, Clark Kent is the assimilation costume, but he's also this Jewish you know, cliche, and, but he works fine that way. Does that work, and I'm not going to get too much into the weeds here, but does that work in the sort of modern version of Clark starting in, let's say, 1986 in the comics, that, like, Clark is the real guy, not Superman, that he's, he's, he might be putting on a little bit of, a, of an act as being, like, a little clumsy or a little awkward, but really, like, he is, he is actually the the kid who is actually well-liked in his, in his hometown, has a lot of friends, is a football star, um, and, you know, also feels very Gentile. Does that, does that allegory work in, in that sort of version of Clark Superman, where Superman is the costume? Right. So if you don't know, there's this perennial argument. Who is he really? Is he Superman and just pretending to be Clark Kent? Or is he Clark Kent and he's, you know, day-to-day, -day, that's where he spends most of his time with, even though he has these affectations, and Superman is just like a job he, he does. Um, and I would say that the answer is the question, mm -hmm. and it's a question asked by the character. Mm -hmm. His search for identity is part of what makes him so interesting. Mm -hmm. I don't think it should ever be resolved cleanly. That said, uh, different creative teams have approached this differently uh, throughout the years. Sometimes as a stark binary, sometimes as a bit more. But I would say a few things. First of all, um, he doesn't have two identities, he has three. 
because he was born of planet Krypton is Kal-El. That's his ethnic identity, your Hebrew name, if you will, right? Mm -hmm. And when he goes to the Fortress of Solitude in the North, that's like a half synagogue, half museum of his lost culture. He goes there only as Kalel. He doesn't go there as Clark Kent. He doesn't sit there with his glasses and suit. He goes there to connect with his heritage and his culture, right? When he speaks to the Holger of his father, we understand it's in English so we can understand it, but it's in Kryptonese. It's their native tongue, right? The ancient tongue. Then there's Clark Kent on the farm, but Clark Kent on the farm disappears the moment he goes to Metropolis. That, he becomes Superman. Right? And then there's this kind of Nebuchadnezzar pushing his glasses up, stuttering Clark Kent in the city, which is how he hides his identity. And in the original, original comics, he was about as clumsy and stuttering and fretful and cowardly as Christopher Reeve. Just maybe a short, just short of that, but about as much. That's attenuated over the years. But here's the interesting thing. He didn't come from Smallville. Smallville was not invented until 1943 in the radio show, didn't immigrate to the comic till 1945. Right? And back then it was uh, Maryland or something. It wasn't even uh, Iowa. Uh, in the original comics, for example, the origin story in Superman 1 in 1939, June 1939, he grew up in Metropolis. He's a city kid. He went to Metropolis High School. You see him as a kid leaping over cityscape. He came from the Lower East Side. Right? <laughs> he's, a, he's a city Jew. That's great. Yeah. One of the things I appreciate about your book is the inclusion in it of Superman and pop culture. You, you, you said you've taken in everything. TV, movies... In regards to specifically film, Superman the movie, we, we've talked about this. Is, Your shirt. Your wonderful I'm, yeah, shirt. I'm wearing my Christopher Reeve shirt. It's my favorite movie of all time. Not even my favorite superhero movie. My favorite movie of all time. And if you haven't watched it or haven't watched it in years, you should. It's wonderful as an adult. Yeah. So many layers of metaphor and themes. Oh, yeah. I, I took uh, my wife my parents when they, when they re-released it in the theaters two years ago, three years ago, and it was an incredible experience. Yeah. Like, it was my first time seeing it in the theater because I wasn't born yet when it came out. So, right, yeah, same here. Um, I hatched in 1980. This came in 1978. It, it was amazing. So it always bothered me, though, that Richard Donner, the director, director decided to, to take the, the Superman mythos in sort of a Christological Christian direction. And you say in the last third of your book, it's here that Superman as Christ allegory began, fittingly embodied by an actor named Christopher. It may have always been present to some extent, but the movie fleshed it out to the degree that Donner received death threats over the sacrilege. Obviously, once art is out there, it can be interpreted right. you know, by whomever, however. But how do you feel about Donner, Brian Singer, I guess Zack Snyder, who in my opinion doesn't have much of a vision at all, um, taking these beloved ideas from beloved Jewish creators and turning them into Christ allegories. Is that okay? Can they do that? Is that just another version of Christian hegemony? Uh, yeah, it's interesting. The, you know, I, I, in several contexts, I've said that this book is not, it's a reclamation. We're reclaiming mm. what was ours. It's not a mm. revision. It's the opposite of that. Mm. Um, by the way, Richard Donner, if you don't know, was Jewish. Richard Schwartzberg. Everybody involved with this movie was Jewish. The producers were um, Alexander and Ilya Salkind, Hungarian-Mexican Jews. Interesting combo. The last artist to give it a polish was Tom Mankiewicz, who wrote all the Roger Moore, James Bond. The primary author, though, not Jewish, is Mario Puzo, the guy who wrote The Godfather. Yeah. Interesting. Um, and to this day, when adjusted for inflation, what he got to write that script is by far the highest salary ever paid to a uh, first screenwriter. And then they ended up barely using a script because Tom Mankiewicz rewrote it. Well, Tom Mankiewicz <laughs> lies about how much he rewrote, though. I actually read all the versions of different scripts to see the changes, and he kept a lot. So yeah. with all due respect to his work, he, he said he tossed everything out. He didn't use a word. Yeah, that's a lot. He used a lot. Well, that's fine. Uh, but he did give it that kind of Shakespearean gravitas. Right. So 
the, the reason I gave you this background is because the Christ metaphor actually traces to a large extent back to Puzo, who's a Catholic Italian. Wait, did you say that Richard Donner is Jewish? Schwartzberg, yeah. Is Richard the Bronx. Donner's real name is Schwartzberg? Yeah, from the Bronx. Wow. Yeah. You heard it here, folks. And by the way, his I need assistant, to take that in for a minute. <laughs> his assistant reached out to me when the book came out asking for a copy, and I sent it, and he passed away a week later. So that was, that was sad. Yeah. But yeah, he's one of us. I didn't know that. That's amazing. Is Richard Donner circumcised? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, Schwartzberg. And he brought that kind of New York Vivace tempo, yeah. Yeah. you know. Uh, so, screwball comedy vibe right, to that but, part, to the Metropolis Act. Yeah. So, you know, in the movie, uh, Superman isn't sent from Krypton uh, by a desperate father trying to save his life as a refugee. He's sent to Earth to save us from ourselves, right? And he's sent in a uh, spaceship that looks like a, a star Bethlehem slash Christmas tree topper, right. you know? Um, and there's a lot of evocative language, although some of that language has been misattributed to the New Testament, actually traced to the Old Testament, but that's details in the book. And... Um, there's all these kind of Christological metaphors. Uh, his father, who's this dressed in all white and is very bright apparition, uh, tells him, they can be a great people, Kalel they wish to be. They only lack the light to show the way. For this reason above all, their capacity for good, I have sent them you, my only son. That's very Jesus-y, and there's all kinds of stuff like that. However, so this really traces back to the Mario Puzo version, and again, Italian Catholic, he brought his own background. But this was deliberate, and the producers were in on it, the director was in on it, they knew they were doing it. The second movie, the Richard Donner cut, has the creation of Adam scene that didn't make it to the final cut and all this kind of stuff. I'm not offended by it. I think people just, you know, it, it wasn't intended to be proselytizing, but more as a cultural blueprint for wider audiences to relate to and understand. It they was were for aware. commercial reasons, for right, commercial capitalism. Reason. Right. Yeah. You like Jesus, I'll sell you Jesus. <laughs> no. And it did. It was the most successful movie of all time at the time when right. it came out. Um, it would be the equivalent today to a movie making $1.7 billion. And for one character in a movie, only four movies ever achieved that. So that's, you know. So it doesn't bother me so much. But it is a shame that Superman is taken in the public consciousness, mostly because of following works. 2006, Superman Returns. Uh, 2001, Smallville. And definitely the Zack Snyder films. Uh, 2013, Man of Steel. 2016, Batman v Superman. Et cetera, et cetera. They really made it blunt. That's in your face. There's, you know... All these moments, of, you know, Superman stands like this, and Jesus he, in the background, the glass thing, he's window. He's floating like, over, over Earth, you know, with his arms out. There's a page yeah. in the book where I just put picture after picture to compare of him in a, in a Christ pose in different yeah. kind of movies and shows, <laughs> like picture, 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 because they do that a lot. You know, listen, some people want to be spoon-fed. With Man of Steel, they actually, it was a conspiracy. Uh, Wonder Bros actually created a whole series of websites uh, about the Christian metaphors, and they reached out to all kinds of televangelists and preachers and community leaders to disseminate the message. You know, they're actively going after this audience. So it's a shame that, you know, in the, in the general audience, Superman is perceived as such a Christ figure and such a uh, metaphor when he really is a Jewish metaphor at heart. In the comics, there's nothing Christian until the 90s, really. It's very Jewish. Uh, but that said, I think there's enough room for everybody. You know, he's, okay. he's a tabula rasa in a way. Everybody should be able to see themselves in him in this old, you know, all-American icon. But, you know, we know better. And we know that this all-American icon is really a Jewish immigrant. And he's a Jewish-American icon. And what is more all-American than being uh, an immigrant from elsewhere, right? Amen. Well, I, I can't believe we're almost out of time. And I do want to take uh, questions from uh, the Please. audience if we have a moment. But I've got to just, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. I've, I've got a million questions for you, Roy. But we might have to do this again. Sure. We can uh, do it intimately at the booth. Like, yeah. yeah, yeah at the table. Uh, does Superman need to be Jewish? Does it matter? 
I actually do not want him to be Jewish. Yeah. Uh, I, I think he works better the more of a blank slate he is. Yeah. And in America, blank slate is still kind of Protestant. It's, it's like Parv, you know. He's, <laughs> yeah. uh, he's, he's, he's Jewish metatextually. He's Jewish as a character. He's Jewish because of historical context and thematic content. In the comics, canonically, he's Christian, non-practicing, pan-humanist, you know. He's met aliens. He knows factually that Christian dogma is not accurate. You know what I mean? <laughs> he's not that... He's, He's not practicing, but I would like him to stay that way. The other superhero who is Jewish and should be Jewish and is heavily hinted to be Jewish but is never explicitly Jewish, and I do want him to finally come out of the tefillin closet, Spider-Man. Yeah. Spider-Man is Jewish. Absolutely. And we, that's a whole different that's talk. A whole other we can get into time, that. Yeah. But that, Peter Parker is a Jewish kid and he needs to be Jewish. Get over it. <laughs> we'll, we'll save that for another time. Yeah. Um, so... I, I, I want to. Yeah. We'll, we'll take a moment for questions in a second, but I just want to say. So obviously, I'm the target audience for this book, right? I, 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 Superman is a part of my daily life, as is Judaism. Right. Tell us about what, maybe a casual fan, or why someone who who are you reaching for this book? Who would you like to reach? So anybody with interest in Jewish subject matter, this is relevant for. You learn a bit about Judaism, but you also learn about Jewish impact on American culture in a way that hasn't really been explored before. And I'm biased, but I think it's a lot of fun. You know, uh, Comic book fans as well. You don't need to uh, care about Judaism. Uh, just like you can read a history of jazz and not care about the African-American experience necessarily, but it's going to be there because that's where it came from. You know, In the same way, you can read this with an interest in American pop culture, in comic books, and in Superman. Uh, the three overlap, but they're not necessarily the same. And lastly, honestly, if, if you like interesting history and you like colorful stories and you like all kinds of Michigas going on everywhere, this book has a lot of fun stuff. I really try to make it fun. I highly recommend it. It's great. Um, are there any questions from you folks here? Yes. Lyle? Yes. Go ahead. Very well done. Thank you for, uh, Thank you. Uh, for sending and uh, sharing your, your story and your book with us. Uh, getting back to uh, the late 30s, early 40s, World War II, and I know this might seem a little bit uh, uh, nebulous in terms of the linkage, but it's fairly well known that Meyer Lansky would put together a group of his, his uh, mob, if you will, and go bring up a lot of these rallies. Was there ever any kind of linkage, you know, uh, in terms of, you talk about Jewish pride, right, and, and strength and wanted to be shown as more than just lambs, you know, being led to... So the question was. I heard it. The question was for um, sort of that New York idea in the in the in the late in the late thirties. Meyer Lansky was there ever a connection between the Jewish mob and trying to fight uh, the rise of Nazism in in America? And is there any kind of general connection between Superman there? Yes, there are several. So the publishers of DC Comics, Harry Donnefeld and Jack Leibowitz, were bootleggers and pornographers. And that's how they made their money during the Depression. They were bringing in, uh, you know, all the Seagrams and all that kind of stuff from Canada. And uh, what back then was called pornography. It was spicy, spicy Paris Pin-ups. stories, spicy detectives, spicy this, lots of spicy magazines. And they continued doing this until well after Superman started. Um, 
when it became too big, then they kind of left it, let it go. And they were very much connected to all kinds of mobsters. Donfeld was a friend of one uh, of uh, Luciano. He was a friend of the Luciano family, and they were connected and all that kind of stuff. So there was that. Uh, and it may or may not have anything to do with the fact that at the end of the day, nobody attacked them, unlike Marvel. Um, but Marvel, I'll go on a quick sidestep. Uh, the editor-in-chief, who was also uh, Captain America's uh, writer, which is Joe Simon, gets this call one day, and it's Mayor LaGuardia. Now, I don't know if you know, most people don't. Mayor LaGuardia was secretly Jewish. His sister actually died in the camps, and he's Italian-Jewish. And he kept it on a secret. To this day, most people don't know. And he said, I love Captain America. I read it with my kids every day. I'm going to make sure no harm comes to you. And he turned the lobby of um, uh, Marvel Comics into an improvised police precinct. And from then on, for the rest of the war, they had cops patrolling the lobby. So that alone is a cool story. Wow. Uh, in terms of mob, that's all I know in terms of mob connections. But although distribution, in t- magazines, alcohol, whatever, cigarettes, was all mobbed up back then, They're certainly in New York. So um, that kind of stuff. But Superman had a very real impact in fighting Nazis, domestic and foreign. Uh, Superman posters sold more uh, war bonds than Uncle Sam posters. Mm-hmm. When he went on the radio, they would see spikes. He was so popular that they used him to reach, the American government used him to reach audiences that would have nothing to do with them, like the Japanese population. They had Superman ads for war bonds in Japanese newspapers. The argument, Japanese in America, not the, Japanese The joke Japan. that Superman won the war, actually, there was some truth to that. Absolutely. Yeah. He yeah. made a real dent in all these kind of things. Yeah. Uh, and here's the thing. They put Superman imagery on tanks, on tugboats, on jeeps, and airplanes. The U.S. Air Force Reserve 33rd Bomber Squadron renamed itself the Superman Squadron, mm-hmm. and every B-52 had his image. Mm-hmm. So in very real life, he was there in the pockets of soldiers and under vehicles on D-Day in the Battle of the Bulge, fighting Nazis in real life. He was a golem in that sense, right? He was a creation. Instead of um, clay and incantation, he was art and writing, but he was, a, he was an artistic creation that made an impact and defended the people who created him. It's a metaphor, but work with me here. And, <laughs> Right, there right. you go. Instead of man of clay, he was there a man of steel, right? There you go. A mensch of steel, Thank if you. you will. And there's more to it. Uh, his radio show and then later his, um, the George Reeves show actually conspired secretly with the American, uh, the Anti-Defamation League and other organizations to promote messages of tolerance and anti-racism. And that, that created its own furor. That's, that's in the books. It's its own little yeah, can of amazing. Words. I think we have the time gentleman? for one, one more question. By the way, if you don't get to you on, at the table, just stop yeah, by. Let's go one chat. more question. Was Bob Kane also Jewish? Yes. Robert Kahn. Yeah. So was Bill Finger. Yeah, Milton Finger. Yeah. Yeah, they were Jewish. Everybody was Jewish. Yeah. All those guys were Jewish. And by the way, the only two main characters not created by Jews, Wonder Woman and Shazam, Captain right. Marvel. Right. Wonder Woman, how, her original creation story... Henry, how was Wonder Woman created in the original creation story? Her mother, Queen of the she Amazons. She was sculpted from clay. Sculpted from clay. Yeah. She's a golem. And she's Amosa. So yeah. it's, all, it's all there. All right, we got, we, we got to wrap it up. I want to yeah. do three quick things for you. Yeah. Top five favorite superheroes, Roy. Oh, man, he's jumping in. Okay, Captain America, Superman. Uh, it, it's all downhill from there, right? Uh, Captain America, Superman. I'm going to say Batman yeah. because that's the holy triangle for yeah. me. Yeah. Um, Wonder Woman. Yeah. Oof, that's a rough one. That's Who's your fifth? I don't know. I have to think about this. Spider-Man? Put me on the spot. Let's say, eh, <laughs> teenagers in high school, it's not my thing. Okay. Yeah. Top five favorite comic book creators. Uh, <laughs> Siegel and Schuster automatically go to number that's, one. That's one, yeah. Uh, Simon and Kirby. Okay. And I'm going to have to say uh, John Byrne. John Byrne. Okay, great. Top five superhero movies. 
Superman, the movie. Superman, number two. Uh, Avengers. Um, Captain America, Winter Soldier. Yeah. That's the second one. It's an yeah. amazing movie. Yeah. And um, I'll have to think about the fifth, but you got four. Okay. Great. Thank you. Roy, thank you so much. This was an honor thank and a privilege. You. Thank you, guys. Happy Hanukkah. Let's do it again sometime. Yeah. Take care. Thanks, everybody. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Jewish Comics Pod, or you can email us at Jewish Comics Podcast at gmail.com.